Welcome to War Stories. I'm Preston Stewart, and this is a show where we talk about America's military history through the lens of individual acts of heroism and valor. Enjoy. Today marks part one of a multi-part series focused on the initial phases of the United States war in Afghanistan, a conflict that to date has cost the lives of over 2,400 Americans. So today we have the story of CIA officer Mike Spann, who on November 25th, 2001, became the first American to be killed in combat operations during this war. Now on September 11th, 2001, Al-Qaeda operatives hijacked four American aircraft. They flew two into the World Trade Center in New York, one into the Pentagon, and after the passengers on United Flight 93, the fourth aircraft, rose up and fought back the hijackers, that plane crashed into a field in Pennsylvania. The 9-11 attacks would take nearly 3,000 American lives, marking the deadliest attack on American soil in our history. In the immediate aftermath, American leadership began planning a response. They were looking for those responsible and planning to hold them accountable, however we could. Pretty quickly, we recognized that the attack was the work of, the attacks, I should say, was the work of a group called Al-Qaeda led by Osama bin Laden. We were already familiar with his work. And he was holed up in Afghanistan, or holed up is not the right term. He was a guest of Mullah Omar and the Taliban in Afghanistan. So that's going to make it a tough nut to crack because Afghanistan's at war at this point. The Taliban run the country. They have 80 to 90% control over the entire country. There are a series of, we'll call them anti-Taliban groups spread across the country. Most are holed up in the North. And one of the major ones that we will align heavily with is known as the Northern Alliance. But the Taliban pretty well control all of Afghanistan. And we're not on perfect terms, maybe I should say, with Mullah Omar and his organization. Nonetheless, the first step that our president, that President Bush takes is to appeal to Mullah Omar to essentially say, our beef is not with you. We just want this guy that's hanging out in Afghanistan. Let us get him and we'll be on our way. It was a, it was the right move by President Bush to go that route initially, but nobody really expected for that to pan out. The two organizations were somewhat at odds with each other, but there was no way Mullah Omar was going to side with the United States over Al-Qaeda. Now, it's worth stepping back here for a minute to talk about the two groups just briefly, because I think over time, we kind of kind of mold them all together, and they're, they're very, very different. If you ever heard anybody say, you know, why are we in Afghanistan? The Taliban didn't attack us. They're spot on. The Taliban is a local movement made up at this time, especially almost exclusively of Afghans, as well as some Pakistanis, focused on establishing and running what they call the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan. It's local. They're looking at running Afghanistan under their model of governance. On the other hand, you have Al-Qaeda, the group that bin Laden formed and that attacked the United States on 9-11. Their stated goal is more global. They're looking to establish an Islamic caliphate long-term. It's not a a short-term prospect of theirs. But to do that, their strategy is to help facilitate the downfall of Western society to make way for that caliphate. So really 
these two groups living alongside each other in Afghanistan, very different in-state goals, very different strategies, but kind of find themselves tied at the hip now after 9-11. An interesting point here is that because of that differing view and different strategy, they were a little bit at odds because not a lot of people were concerned about Afghanistan in 2001, except that this guy bin Laden and the group Al-Qaeda was holed up there. So Mullah Omar used to get frustrated that his guests were bringing a lot of unwelcomed attention to Afghanistan that wouldn't have otherwise been there. And I had this picture in my mind of Mullah Omar hearing after hearing of the 9-11 attacks and rolling his one good eye. He had famously lost an eye fighting the Soviets in the 1980s, rolling his one good eye and just saying, guys, are you serious? Things are going to get so much harder now. Because I just don't, this is a rabbit hole I'm not going to go down, but what does Afghanistan look like today if bin Laden had launched this attack from somewhere else? Is it even on our radar? I mean, I don't know. Maybe not. Maybe people wouldn't even know what, maybe the majority of Americans wouldn't have even ever heard the term Taliban or the word Taliban about the group. But it's a topic for another day because bin Laden was a guest of the Taliban. And when Mullah Omar demurs through back channels that he's not going to hand over bin Laden, it sends a couple signals to the United States as we are preparing for action. One, we're going to have to do this on our own. Um, We're going to have some Western allies, or I shouldn't say Western allies, allies outside of Afghanistan that will will join us in the fight. And hopefully we can work with um, partners inside Afghanistan to be determined. But the second thing it tells us is that we are going to have to fight through the Taliban to get to Al-Qaeda. These two groups, as I mentioned, are now kind of joined at the hip, at least in the near term. So every conflict has a starting point. It has to begin somewhere. There has to be a first step. And the first step in a place like Afghanistan, that we don't have anybody currently located, no Americans, no U.S. resources, I should say, is we need to get some people on the ground. Just a few. Not a lot. They need to keep a low profile. They're going to have to come in via some pretty dangerous routes in some pretty rickety equipment that could crash at any moment. They're going to have to land on a battlefield They're going to have to link up with these militia leaders and convince them to fight alongside Americans when we are able to put more military forces on the ground. It's a good thing we have the CIA or Central Intelligence Agency, the organization that Mike Spann is a part of. Mike Spann was a Marine Corps officer and joined the CIA in the late 90s. He's relatively new to the organization and had just completed a deployment, I believe, to the Balkans before coming home. He was in the United States during the 9-11 attacks and quickly left his wife and three children at home to help spearhead this assault into Afghanistan. We would land mere weeks after 9-11, still in September we would land, um, I say land, it was helicopters uh, taken from nearby countries where we did have bases over incredible mountain ranges in the dark, often in snowstorms even, in rickety old Soviet-era helicopters so as to blend in a little bit. That's what these CIA officers were taking into war. And they would land on, you know, on a battlefield. They'd be behind the lines of the Northern Alliance soldiers, but they're landing in the dark linking up with warlords who the 
soft way of saying it. I'm calling them warlords. It's a combination. You can kind of use it interchangeably. Warlord, militia leader, general. Afghanistan throughout history has had a lot of warlords um, controlling parts of the country. So it's not too far off to use that term, but I think it paints the picture here of the threat to these CIA officers that are landing in the dark and linking up with these guys. Think about that. I mean, it wouldn't have been crazy for one of the militia members on guard to see some random figures walking towards him in the dark and open fire. Just the risk of even getting on the ground is crazy. Nonetheless, CIA teams are inserted across Northern Afghanistan, linking up with the militia leaders. There are some previous relationships from when the CIA was involved with the Mujahideen fighting the Soviets in the 1980s. But many of the CIA officers are meeting these Afghan leaders for the first time. And their goal is to open the door for more military forces to come into the country, namely special forces. That's in the coming weeks, but there's going to be a period of time where these CIA officers like Mike Spann are on the ground with not much in terms of weapons. They're not kitted up like you would see a special operations soldier, what you might have in your mind um, today. They're going in in civilian attire with a rifle, a handgun, maybe a little bit more, a lot of communications equipment because their goal is going to be to relay intelligence back to the United States and to um, military headquarters that are planning follow-on operations. Now, once they're on the ground, the the conflict between the Northern Alliance and the Taliban never really stops. It's kind of a low-level conflict for long periods of time, and then there will be offensive operations from time to time. So there is combat after Mike Spann and his team are on the ground, and before kind of the major battle we're going to get into. But Spann and his team are going to link up with a Afghan leader named uh, Abdul Dostum, General Dostum. He is a fixture in recent Afghan history. So I will say this in a politically correct manner. His history on the battlefield over the last you know, 30 or 30 years now, we should say, in terms of human rights has been questioned a few times. That's the person that Mike Spann is tasked with working with. It's a pretty crazy assignment. The way they're going to win support is by building these relationships, building trust, maybe providing some American air power, and probably most important of all, a lot of money. The CIA officers are hitting the ground with duffel bags full of cash, millions of dollars to, I mean, there's no other way to say this, to buy support for the American goals in Afghanistan of moving through the Taliban, maybe toppling the Taliban to round up the Al-Qaeda operatives responsible for the 9-11 attacks. Now, after they've been on the ground for a period of time and the special forces teams arrive in country, the focus shifts towards the first really major offensive operation in this war. So it speaks to how long it took to win these militias over and kind of consolidate and organize and, and for people like Mike Spann to focus their energy in certain areas rather than each fighting for their own individual goals. And on November 9th, Mike Spann and his team and the other CIA teams and the special forces soldiers in country link up with these militias and focus their energies on a place called Mazari Sharif. It is a city in Northern Afghanistan. It's held by the Taliban 
and it is expected for this fight to drag on well into 2002. So starts in November, we'll call it at least a two-month fight is kind of what's expected. The Taliban are dug in. Um, at this point, they know that there's going to be offensive operations carried out across the country. And the Taliban's a, 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 it's a solid fighting force at this time. I mean, they have tanks at this point in the conflict, substantial military capabilities, and they've been beating the Northern Alliance. So the Americans show up and help, help, I should say, during the Battle of Mazari Sharif. And this is when you start to see Americans like Mike Spann and these special forces soldiers riding around on horseback with General Dostum, kind of the preferred method for that general and his team to get across the battlefield. Mazari Sharif falls in a little over a day. Remember, this is a battle that was supposed to go on for two months or more. And there's a few major reasons for that. One, American air power is on scene. And we can't understate how important that is. That's something we're going to hit on a little bit more in our next episode. But you can't take territory without boots on the ground. And the boots on the ground at this point, other than the you know, a couple dozen Americans are Afghan soldiers, Northern Alliance soldiers. Those are the ones corralled, organized, and deployed through Mike Spann, I should say, and his team. So they are, by buying that support, able to direct kind of the, the operations or help guide, maybe is a better way to say it, the operations of these militias under people like General Dostum. Now, the fall of Mazari Sharif on November 11, November 10th, barely a month after the September, or just a couple months after the September 11th attacks, was a, a major turning point in this war. This was, again, something that was set to drag out for a period of time, and when it didn't, and the battle would only cost a couple dozen um, Northern Alliance lives compared with upwards of 500 Taliban and Al-Qaeda lives, it was kind of an eye-opening experience on the battlefield, and it, it had... Let's just talk morale because it hit both sides totally differently. For the United States and for the Northern Alliance, it shot our morale through the roof. And we said, hey, this thing might not take as long as expected. We might not lose as many people as we thought, especially with this air power on scene. This could be over quickly. Boost momentum. On the other side, the Taliban are kind of thinking, what the hell just hit us? What was that? We've been holding these lines for years and in, one, in a one-day attack, we lost this major stronghold in the north. Not a good sign. So following, following, the, following the fall, struggling to say that there, after the fall of Mazari Sharif, General Dostum offers up a surrender terms or terms of surrender, just broadly speaking. And this isn't crazy. What he's going to offer isn't crazy because think of this like a civil war. Whoever wins this conflict is going to have to go back to living with each other down the road supposedly, or that's kind of the idea in a civil war, right? One side's going to win, the other's going to lose, and then you're going to have to get back together. So he offers surrender and go home. You see what's coming. You see the Americans, you see the air power, surrender, save your lives, go home. No questions asked. The numbers are all over the place here, but some reports are that upwards of 8,000 enemy fighters will surrender in late, mid to late November to General Dawson, taking him up on this offer. The group is a mix of local Taliban, some Pakistani Taliban, and then a handful of Al-Qaeda operatives and fighters. It's worth 
saying right now, this is a little outside my wheelhouse, but I think it's appropriate to bring up. Um, well, the group is split. Mike Spann and the Americans are going to sift out about five to 600 suspected Al-Qaeda fighters, and they're going to take responsibility for those. General Dostum is going to take the other 7,500 or so, and there are reports in that group of widespread atrocities, dozens of executions and, and putting these prisoners in Connex containers or shipping containers and just leaving them out to die, um, mass graves. A lot of these, these folks um, supposedly just went missing. I don't know. Um, it sounds like that's one of those things that's still under kind of ongoing forever investigation. Nonetheless, that's the kind of thing you're going to see. Um, that's not fair. That's not the right way to say it. It's not the kind of thing you're going to see. That is an item here in November of 2001 in this conflict, um, just worth bringing up because it's happening at the time. But let's shift over to these other couple hundred, upwards of five or 600 suspected Al-Qaeda fighters. These are now the responsibility of Mike Spann and his team, a small team. They move under guard of some Northern Alliance fighters. They move to a compound just outside of Mazari Sharif. It's a medieval fortress. It's called Kala'i Jangi, or the House of War. And it is just that. I mean, look up pictures of Kala'i Jangi, and it is, it is a fort with guard towers and tall you know, exterior walls and courtyards and buildings on the inside. It's pretty big. Um, you know, pretty decent sized and span and his men with these handful of Northern Alliance soldiers will move these prisoners to Kala Ijangi and they will put the prisoners in a basement cellar area to be, to, to wait out the night. Now the next morning on November 25th, 2001 span and his team get up. They've got a long day of work ahead of them. He's going to spend the entire day working sitting next to interacting with hundreds of Islamic extremists that want to kill him. There's just a few Americans on scene. And many of these prisoners, their hands are bound simply with cloth, or in some cases, their turbans. It's not like Dostum had, you know, cases of handcuffs to be doled out just in case 8,000 Taliban surrender, right? They were not ready for that. So, so Span's taking a lot of risk. Why? I mean, he's doing this just with a few Northern Alliance guards standing nearby. Well, this is shortly after 9-11, right? And for anybody who remembers the feeling of that time, we were scared. We were anxious. We were vulnerable. All we knew was that Another attack could happen at any moment. We felt, you know, we felt like we couldn't do anything to stop it. The 9-11 attacks caught us so off guard. It was something that was not on anyone's mind. It opened up this horrible possibility that it could happen again, maybe pretty easily. Do you remember all of the reports and the talking points of the next attack and what's going to be the big target? Those are the questions that Mike Spann is asking these Al-Qaeda operatives, these Al-Qaeda members in Kala'i Jangi on November 25th. And I just, how many people in the United States at that time, just a few months after 9-11, wish they could have contributed just an ounce of what Mike Spann is doing at Kala'i Jangi? 
I mean, there's tip of the spear, and then there's Mike Span outside of Mazari Sharif, right? Talking to, interrogating Al Qaeda fighters that may have been with Bin Laden while he was planning some of these attacks. It doesn't get any more front lines than that. So, yes, he's taking risks. He's going through this as quickly as possible. But for all he knows, somebody in that group has information that's going to save American lives. So he's got to get to it. They work through a lot of these guys, taking pictures, interrogating. When I say interrogating, it's not necessarily harsh harsh interrogation technique, struggling with that one. Just questioning. They found that a lot of these guys just opened up and wanted to talk. Uh, Notably, one of the members that they interacted with who did not talk was named John Walker Lind, otherwise known as the American Taliban. And they work through just about the entire group. They get down to 30 or so remaining and they won't come out of the basement. They don't want to be identified, which is probably a red flag. Now, the day and night before when the prisoners surrendered and were organized and moved to Kali Jangi, it was chaos. Nobody's ever ready for 8,000 people to surrender at any given moment, right? And in that chaos, some of these prisoners were able to smuggle in weapons firearms, and grenades. So as the last 30 refused to come out of the basement, some Northern Alliance guards start to go down the stairs to force them out. Shots ring out, and a revolt of the prisoners has begun. There are two CIA officers on the ground. There's Mike Spann and another gentleman named David Tyson. They are separated. They're not right on top of each other while they're going through these interrogations. But I want to make sure I I bring him up. Uh, We'll get back to that here in just a moment. As the uprising starts, it it spreads quickly. The compound of Kali Jangi has been a base for General Dawson for some some time. So there are munitions stored there. There's weapons and, and, you know, weapons for use by his men. But as the prisoners start to rise up and attack... Some of these guards, many of these Northern Alliance guards, look for the exits and start to get out of the area. The prisoners identify Span, and he is an attractive target. You know, the lone American, one of two. That said that two different ways there. He's the closest American to the majority of these prisoners here. So he makes for an attractive target, and the prisoners lunge, start to attack him. Span has a sidearm and a rifle. He expends all ammunition, killing multiple Al-Qaeda fighters at close range with his pistol before switching over to his rifle and doing the same. He is quickly out of ammunition and has to resort to -to hand-to-hand combat. But Mike is outnumbered to the tune of dozens to one. And in short order, he's overtaken and killed. The reason I brought up the other CIA officer in the compound is to say that he's there. He didn't turn and run, but this happened so fast that by the time he got to where Mike Spann was, he was already dead. That other officer made it out of the immediate compound and reinforcements were called. Now, the prisoners have kicked off a hopeless fight. 
remember I said this is a fortress and the prisoners now hold the courtyard on the inside. So reinforcements show up to the tune of some tanks with General Dostum and more Northern Alliance soldiers, as well as special operations forces from the United States, from the United States and the United Kingdom. They set up various positions around the courtyard and just start laying devastating fire into the, you know, what were prisoners and now are, are fully armed Al-Qaeda and Taliban fighters. Again, remember, this was a compound used by General Dawson, so it didn't take too long after chaos kind of kicked off for them to find weapons and start fighting back. Now, the courtyard's big, and there is some cover in there, but not a lot. So this direct fire of machine guns and rifles up on the walls is, is hammering the men inside, but they don't give up. There's even tanks brought in, like I said, of General Dawson. Before long, the Americans start calling in airstrikes. That might give you an idea to the size of the compound here. You can start dropping bombs inside of it. After three days, the remaining prisoners are down to kind of a last stand. They work themselves back into another kind of basement or cellar area, and they won't come out. But if Americans or Northern Lions soldiers try to go down the stairs, they're going to be shot. So General Dostum orders the area flooded, the basement flooded. They pump water and cold water in. Still, they hold out. It's a couple days later when 86 prisoners emerge, surrendering, ending the Battle of Kali Jangi. In that group is the American Taliban, John Walker Lind. Between fewer than 86, more than 50 survived. There were many men that were seriously wounded down there that came out barely um, you know, on the brink of death. The Battle of Kali Jangi would last six days. This battle, which was the revolt of these Al-Qaeda and a few Taliban prisoners, would cost the lives of upwards of 500 Al-Qaeda members, 73 Northern Alliance soldiers, and one American. CIA officer Mike Spann, the first American to be killed in combat operations in the war in Afghanistan. Now, despite the large-scale surrender that we saw after the Battle of Mazari Sharif, the Taliban fought on. And in short order, would experience firsthand the devastating lethality of American combat controllers on the ground and air power overhead. That's next time on War Stories. Hey, thanks for listening to War Stories. If you get a chance, it'd mean an awful lot if you could head over to Apple or Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcast and leave a review. It helps others to, to find the show. But thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time.